2 p.m. Wednesday, April 8th, 1992, Indianapolis, Indiana. Lucretia Gullett, who works at the Speedway gas station, picks up the phone at the station. On the other end is the district manager of Payless Shoes. He tells her that he's worried. He's been calling the Payless shop next door at 7325 Pendleton Pike for over 45 minutes. No one's answering. When Lucretia goes over to check, she is alarmed. No one is in sight at the store, and the cash register drawer is open and empty. She runs back to the gas station to call police. When they arrive at 2.15 p.m., they find the body of store manager, Robin Fuldauer, age 26. Robin has been shot twice, execution style, in the back of the head. No one knows at the time, except the murderer, but Robin's murder is just the beginning. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice. Be politically incorrect and judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, I hope all is well with you. If you are listening in the future... This time is the time of the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. In Kansas, we are just starting to come out of everything being shut down, but it's still an anxious time. In Leavenworth, Prison City, USA, our prisons here are a big worry. Their very nature causes them to be hit especially hard by COVID-19. Here we have dozens of confirmed cases of the virus and some deaths. 
So while we're calling people heroes during this pandemic, don't forget people who work in corrections. Without them, we would all be much less safe. They're heroes every day. At the best of times, going to work in a correctional facility is grim and takes dedication. Spring 2020 is not the best of times. My husband and I are in that high-risk elderly category, a little scary. By the way, I really don't like that word elderly, but it's getting harder and harder to say I'm middle-aged, since that means I'm going to have to live to, oh, I think 140 or so. Um, some mornings I feel like I could do that. Other mornings, no. <laughs> so, We've been socially isolating, which honestly isn't much of a sacrifice to me. I'm an introvert, bordering on agoraphobic, but surprisingly, it's been harder to work on the podcast than I thought it would be. When everything all started, I thought I'd hunker down and be able to just churn out a bunch of podcasts with nobody interrupting me or making me go someplace? Well, not so much. I'm behind on just listening to true crime podcasts and watching true crime shows. My coping mechanisms are crafts and computer programming projects. However, I did scroll a lot through Reddit and web sleuths and YouTubes, that did get me to dive deep into a few good cases. This podcast is about a case that I remember from back in the day. Oh, sorry, listeners, I really wandered off topic there, um, but it's, it's my podcast after all. Anyway, I alluded to this episode's case in the Dolly Madison murders episode, Today's case will come to be known as the I-70 murders. And I do, as I said, remember this case very well. In 1992, when it all happened, we had just moved back to the States from Germany, where my husband was sent by the U.S. Army. His last assignment was here at Fort Leavenworth, so that's how we ended up making this our home. It was all in the papers and newscasts. Oh, not not my husband's retirement. Um, the murders. Oh, spoiler alert. Um, more murders are coming. Um, Unsolved Mysteries aired a segment about the case a couple of years after all this happens on May 4th, 1994. I rewatched it on Prime TV. It's uh, season six, episode 21 on there, and it brought back memories. Not a very long segment on Unsolved Mysteries, but worth watching. Sometimes I don't think TV reenactments are very accurate, almost like they're more concerned with the drama than the facts. But from what I can tell, this one's right on. I should also say that one of the newspaper stories I read from 1992 said that Unsolved Mysteries aired a segment about this case in August. So what I saw might have been a rerun. I'm not sure. But I never could find 
anything about an episode from 1992 on the case. And just to comment about this, there's a Wikipedia page and an IMDb page and Amazon Prime, and they have lists of episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, but they're not arranged very well. And it's still hard to find the actual episodes if you're looking for some particular case. Um, I don't know if this has something to do with the way the distributors package stuff up. And maybe there is some great index out there, but I couldn't find one. Also, um, I'm pretty sure the I-70 murders were on America's Most Wanted, too. I I really think I was religiously watched that show, and I'm pretty sure there was an episode about this case on there, too. And there are lots of good podcasts on the case. I think my personal favorites, True Crime Garage and True Crime All the Time, and actually it would be an unsolved true crime all the time, and The Trail Went Cold and Generation Y have all done this case. As I've said before, I purposely don't go back and re-listen to those podcasts because I don't want to copy anything, but I'd recommend you listen to all those podcasts. Just don't be... Um, don't be too harsh on me after listening to them. They're really the gold standard of true podcast, true crime podcasts, as far as I'm concerned. As always, I used a bunch of sources for this episode, which I'll put in the show notes, mainly the major newspapers in the area where the I-70 murders take place, my old standbys with their great crime reporters, the Indianapolis Star, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Kansas City Star, and the Wichita Eagle. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. The gas station clerk, Lucretia, will tell reporters, quote, I didn't want to go back in the back because I figured something had happened. I was afraid of what I might have found, unquote. Yeah, listeners, a very human reaction. I've thought about this scenario before. A few years ago, I went into a little convenience store and didn't see the clerk anywhere. The hair on the back of my neck stood up, one of the many side effects of studying too much true crime. I kind of froze and called out, hello. I like to think I would have investigated, you know, maybe somebody was hurt and I could help. But I was just frozen. And if the clerk hadn't come out of the storeroom right then, I would have run out just like Lucretia did. To give you an idea of the area around the crime scene, the address of the Payless Shoe Store is 7325 Pendleton Pike. Payless is a large chain of small discount shoe stores. I'm not very familiar with Indianapolis other than driving through a few times. I'd say it's best known for its Speedway, site of the famous Indy 500 auto race. The Speedway is farther west of town, 
than the area we're talking about, the northeast side of Indianapolis. There are two major interstate highways that go through Indianapolis, Interstate 65 and Interstate 70. In the United States, the internet, interstate highway system was a pet project of President Dwight Eisenhower. The idea was a national effort to build superhighways to crisscross the country, kind of like the building of the railroads in the 19th century. It took decades, but it happened. The U.S. has a good interstate highway system. The major interstates that run across the country east-west have two-digit numbers that end in zero. The numbers go up as you go north. The idea was you'd have I-10 going sort of across the southern border, then north a bit to I-20, I-30, and so forth up to I-90, which would go up near the Canadian border. Um, the highways running north-south were numbered ending in five, going west to east. So um, I-5, let's see, I-5 is coast of California, Oregon, Washington State, over to all the way across the country, I-95, which goes Florida on up to Maine. It's not really that simple because of mountains and deserts and, you know, big cities, but that is the gist of the plan, to, to keep it fairly simple. All the interstates are at least four-lane divided highways, sometimes a lot bigger, with no stops like traffic lights and things. You get on and off them um, via what we in the states would call exits, even though some are only entrances and some are only exits and some are both. Because of the interstate highways, it's very easy to travel long distances fast in the United States, which has made our interstate highways very useful for criminals. You can hop off at an exit in Dallas in the morning, commit a crime, hop back on the interstate, and be four states away in Atlanta by that night. So, Indianapolis is on Interstate 65 between Chicago, Illinois, and Louisville, Kentucky, which, which crosses with I-70, the east-west highway. The Payless Shoe Store, where Robin was killed, is mm, two minutes to the exit for I-65 and just a few more minutes to get on I-70. You can see the highway from the store. The area isn't densely populated. It's more of an industrial area, a business area. The building is not in a strip mall. It's uh, The Payless store is actually a separate building. Nowadays, it's a Batteries Plus little franchise store. It is very close to the gas station, just a few steps. But other than that, it's pretty isolated. It's risky, but the murderer could easily walk in, shoot Robin, and get away quickly, especially if he has a vehicle. There's a wooded area behind the store and gas station, so even on foot, 
it's possible to get away pretty much without anybody seeing you. Robin Sarah Foldauer, our victim, is born on the 16th of December in 1965. Her parents, Elliot and Carol Foldauer, are transplanted New Yorkers. Elliot is an executive with the RCA Corporation in Indianapolis. Robin has two sisters. The Foldowers are a nice suburban family, active in their community and their Hebrew congregation. Robin graduates from Lawrence Central High School. She was the salutatorian of the class, second in her class, and it's a pretty big high school. And then she graduated from University of Indiana, which is um, pretty close by. Indianapolis. She didn't go too far from home. In her pictures, she looks really sweet and maybe kind of quiet. Lovely fair skin with dark hair and dark eyes. Her sister will later tell the press that Robin was nervous about working alone at the store, which she did quite often. It was the oddest sensation when it happened. When I think of all the times I would stop by to make sure she was okay. I had an enormous fear of something happening to her. She'd always said she was afraid, but this was her job, and she loved her job. When the police first get to the Payless store after Lucretia calls them, there is a customer in the store. According to the newspaper, the customer doesn't report seeing anything unusual. Listeners, I wish they'd written more about this customer, which I keep saying in air quotes, even though you can't see my air quotes. Um, they must have come in right after Lucretia left. I wonder if she told people, and one of them decided it would be a great opportunity to get free shoes. I really hope not, because that's creepy. But I did hear a rumor that there were people who came in the store after the murder and stole things. Let's, let's really hope human nature isn't that ugly. In the initial news stories, it seems the p police are certainly investigating the obvious robbery gone wrong. After all, the cash register's open and the money's gone. But they're also keeping an open mind. A few days later, there's a story that police are trying to find whoever purchased two pairs of shoes at 1.12 p.m. the day Robin was murdered. So, Investigation 101, they're talking to everybody who bought things that day at Payless. My guess is they could find most of them by checking credit cards. The cash purchases uh, would be the ones tough to track, but probably a public appeal might get some people to call in. I never found any real follow-up on the witnesses, though, in the paper. Also, there's not any mention of CCTV, any kind of recording or security system in this whole case either, which is kind of a shame. Um, there is um, there is a way to install video surveillance in 1992, um, even years before that, I had a friend, um, I'd say maybe 
87. She managed a bunch of 7-Eleven convenience stores. They were very conscientious about security. And let's be honest, they should be, because a bunch of their clerks were kidnapped and murdered in the 70s. Her stores all had panic buttons and security cameras. Anyway, probably from customers and witnesses detectives speak with, the upshot is that there's a very tight timeline on Robert's murder between 1.30 and 2 p.m. on April 8, 1992. Someone murdered Robin Foldauer in the back room of the Payless shoe store and got away unseen. There are a number of theories, but not many clues. One story mentions evidence of the scene, but never any details about that. I would think there are lots of fingerprints. Um, it's a business open to the public, but if they ever linked any to a suspect, the case would probably be solved. So I'm guessing that didn't happen. And this is way early for DNA, in, especially in this type of case. The scenario they consider most likely is that the murderer walks in as a customer, pulls a gun, makes Robin open the cash register, then marches her at gunpoint to the back room, where he shoots her and then leaves by the back door, either on foot or with a vehicle of some kind. It could be a local, could be more than one person, for all they know. And with the proximity to Interstate Highways 65 and 70, it could be someone with no connection at all to Indianapolis. Somebody passing through, a transient, a hitchhiker, truck driver, just random traveler. Law enforcement, the uh, lead detective is named Sergeant Michael P. Crook. Yes, really, Crook with an E. I wonder how many times he had to listen to somebody say how funny it is that he's a cop named Crook. NDPD gets many tips. Several people report seeing a stranger in the area, but their descriptions vary quite a bit. Sergeant Crook will doggedly investigate this case even after he retires, but unfortunately, like many cases, Little progress will be made until more people are murdered. Only three days after Robin Fuldauer's murder, but 700 miles away, or over 1,100 kilometers, in Wichita, Kansas, two women, Patricia Smith, 23, and Patricia Majors, 32, Listeners, I'm not positive how you pronounce that last name. It's spelled M-A-G-E-R-S. The great Robert Stack on Unsolved Mysteries says majors, so I'm going with that. The two women are working at a bridal formal, formal wear shop. The business is really two shops side by side. Uh, 4609 and 4619 East Kellogg, kind of a women's side and men's side formal wear and bridal shop. It's April 11th, 1992, a Saturday. 
The shop normally closes at 6.30 p.m., but a customer has called telling them he's on his way, but he's running late. It's variously reported that he's got to pick up a cummerbund or even a whole tuxedo. I don't have much experience with tuxes. I guess you might buy or rent just a cummerbund. Anyway, whatever he's late to pick up, the Patricias agree to wait for him to get there. According to this customer, he gets to the shop around 6.30 p.m. He doesn't see anyone in the store, but the door's open, and he goes in and calls out. A man comes out of the back room, pointing a gun at him. The gunman tells him to go into the back room. All the papers really say about this is there's a brief conversation and somehow it turns out that the gunman inexplicably just lets this customer leave out the front door get in his car and drive away. The reenactment of this on Unsolved, Mystery, Unsolved Mysteries gives you a very good picture of how all this might have happened. A bit, unfortunately, the male customer does not call the police for over an hour. When law enforcement gets there, they find both victims in the back room, shot in the back of their heads. Patricia Smith, the younger woman, is barely alive but not conscious, and she's rushed to the hospital, but it's too late. She's pronounced dead shortly upon arrival. Could they have saved her life if... The late customer had called police sooner. It doesn't sound like it, and I, for once, won't judge this customer. I'd probably faint on the spot if somebody pointed a gun at me. As one of the investigators says, quote, In this case, the customer was very confused and frightened by his ordeal, unquote. Plus, listeners, he could have just driven off and not gotten involved. Mobile phones are available in 1992, the big brick ones, kind of like great big walkie-talkies, but they're not common, so I doubt this customer has one. We don't know much about him. His identity's never been revealed, understandably, but my guess is he went home or to a bar and had a stiff drink or or just sat in shock and trembling for a while. He thought about what happened, though, and he did the right thing. He's got to know he'll be the first suspect, and he was. The police looked long and hard at him and at both husbands as well. Norman Smith and Mark Majors are interviewed at the scene they report being worried when their wives were so late getting home. Both had called the store that evening and gotten no answer. And they're cleared 
very quickly. There really wasn't any major suspicion of either of them, at least as far as we know. The customer gives a good description of the murderer and helps the police artist come up with a drawing. There are some variations of descriptions of the man and several different drawings out there. Ah, uh, spoiler, there are more murders coming up and more witnesses. Essentially, the, the description is pretty nondescript. White male in his 20s or 30s slender build, about five foot eight inches tall or 170 centimeters, clean cut, light brown, reddish hair. The most distinctive characteristic is what witnesses describe as sleepy or hooded or lazy eyelids. If you look at some of the sketches out there, um, I'll put the main one in the show notes. He reminds me of Dennis Hopper, the actor, or Matthew McConaughey, maybe. There's no mention of a vehicle, again. When police get to the scene, the cash register's empty and the keys to the store are in the front door. The police soon connect the murders in Wichita to a very similar crime. Not the one in Indianapolis, but a triple murder at a formal wear store in Kansas City, Missouri, just a three-hour drive away. The triple murder was in 1986, so, you know, several years before, but it's at a similar business. In fact, a business that's part of the same franchise as the Wichita Bridal and Tuck Shop. Three people shot to death in the back of the shop, apparently also a robbery. It's easy to see why they would connect these murders. Similar place, similar type of crime, plus all victims are shot with a 22 caliber gun. A criminal behavior expert, we'd probably say profiler nowadays, is asked to take a look at the case. Both Patricia Smith and Patricia Majors are hometown Kansas girls, both from Wichita. Patricia Majors, known as Trish, is born June 18, 1959, to Alfred and Dorothy Stood. He's a geologist and Dorothy's a nurse. Trish has one brother. The Studs are a nice Catholic family. Trish graduates from Bishop Carroll High School in Wichita and works at the lab at St. Francis Hospital there in Wichita. She marries Mark Majors, who works for Boeing Aircraft. Pursuing a dream, she has owned the bridal shop for a little over a year. According to her husband, she really enjoyed working with the customers and the beautiful clothes. A little heartbreaking footnote to this crime. The deputy coroner at the time, one of the Wichita pathologists, Dr. William Eckert, was on the scene very quickly. And to his shock, he sees that one of the victims, Trish Majors, is someone he has known since she was just a child. He's a close family friend. In fact, he walked Trish down the aisle at her wedding. 
The other Patricia, Patricia Smith, is born the 15th of September 1968 to Bob and Evelyn Trendle. They have two children, a son and Patricia. Patricia graduates from East High School in Wichita and works as a bridal consultant while going to nursing school at Wichita State University. She's been married to Norman Smith for less than a year. There's several pictures of both women out there in the newspapers. Like Robin, they're charming looking. Brunettes with beaming smiles. Back in Indiana, Sergeant Crook is pursuing leads day and night in Robin Foldauer's case. On April 27th, there is another murder, much closer to Indianapolis. If you get on Interstate 70 in Indianapolis and head west just an hour or so, the highway will take you to Terre Haute, Indiana. Terre Haute's a good-sized city. Mm, whole metro area, hundred. 150,000 maybe. It's home to Indiana State University and a major high security federal prison. The Terre Haute facility is where United States federal death row is. It's where the Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh met his much deserved end. And I-70 runs right through Terre Haute on the way to St. Louis, Missouri. Michael Milo McCown, called Mick by everybody, is born in Terre Haute, December 29, 1951, to Phil and Sylvia McCown. Besides Mick, Phil and Sylvia have two daughters. Mick is a talented rock musician. He played bass and had some local success doing that. He's known as an easygoing, all-around good guy. At age 40, in 1992, he's tired of being on the road all the time, and he's taken over his mother's ceramic shop, located in an industrial area in the southern part of Terre Haute. This area looks a lot like where the Payless shoe store, where Robin was murdered in Indianapolis. It looks a lot like that area. A busy street, right on U.S. Highway 41, only three, maybe four blocks from Interstate Highway 70. Sylvia's Ceramic Shop is a little strip mall, is in a little strip mall just off the main road. Behind the store is an alley and then a small residential neighborhood. From the way his body is found, police believe that Mick is shot in the head from behind while he's crouched down stocking shelves in the little shop. Like Robin, the weapon is a twenty-two. Even though Mick's a male victim, law enforcement immediately links his murder with Robin's. Terre Haute PD and Indianapolis PD pool their resources for the investigation. They theorize that the killer likely didn't realize Mick was not a female. He had a long brown ponytail and wore an earring. Now, Mick is a lanky six foot three, but if he's kneeling down, it would be easy for the killer to assume there's a woman alone in the store. The name of the business is Sylvia's Ceramics. 
There are no witnesses in Mick's case. $50 is missing from the register and Michael's wallet is gone. Assistant Police Chief Doe Newport says, quote, It seems reasonable to believe that robbery was not the primary motive. But hell, I don't know. Unquote. Listeners, sometimes law enforcement must be one of the most frustrating jobs there is. The business people around the ceramic shop are surprised that no one saw or heard anything. The manager of a car rental agency nearby notes that it was a busy day, but everyone who came into the agency is known to him. He says there's no parking on the street in front of the ceramic shop. And the saleswoman who works at the car dealership right across from Sylvia's is constantly looking out the window for customers. Quote, the murderer had to come in McCown's back because no one saw a thing, unquote. A retiree who lives just across the alley in the back says he didn't see or hear anything at all. Of course, law enforcement investigators are also looking at other similar crimes in the Midwest. Some officials think the Wichita Bridal Shop murders could be linked. Now, NDPD Detective Sergeant Crook is very skeptical about this. I can see that. In Wichita, there are two victims, and Wichita's 700 miles away. Trish Major's shop is a small business in a strip mall, sort of isolated, but not that close to a highway, certainly not within sight of one. East Kellogg, where the shop is, the bridal shop, it is a major thoroughfare in Wichita, a busy street, but it goes through town. Lots of stoplights and lots of traffic. It's only a few miles from Interstate 35, but it would take some time to get there, especially if you were hitchhiking or on a bike. I may be wrong, but I wouldn't expect to see transients in that area, although there is a big gas station, looks like about a block away. As Sergeant Crook says, quote, the Wichita shootings appear to be too far off of I-70. Wichita is really hot on the idea that they are involved, but we are not, unquote. Listeners, it won't be long before Sergeant Crook will know that he is wrong about there being no connection, but he is right about Wichita not being anywhere near I-70, and the bridal shop I would say isn't all that close to a big highway. Little background on the interstate highways in that area. Wichita's down in southern Kansas, not that far from Oklahoma. I-70 runs east-west through Kansas, two hours north of Wichita. Now the I-35 part of the Kansas Turnpike runs right by Wichita. Basically, if you left Indiana on I-70 headed west, you'd go through St. Louis and then Kansas City. You could either stay on I-70 and go to Topeka, 
then turn south and take I-35 down to Wichita and then Oklahoma and on down to Fort Worth, Dallas, really clear through Texas. Um, yeah, I don't recommend that. <laughs> I-35 is one of the busiest interstates in the U.S. It is truly a nightmare to drive on once you get past Oklahoma City. Hour after hour of construction and traffic jams. I just hate it. When I drive to Texas, I go two hours out of my way over to western Oklahoma to avoid ever having to get on I-35. However, if you are headed west on I-70, you can take I-35 southwest from Kansas City and get to Wichita in a couple of hours. So in that sense, the road to Wichita from Kansas City could be seen as sort of an extension to I-70. At any rate, it won't be long before the link between all four murders will solidify and the nickname I-70 killer will stick to all the murders. Not even a week after Mick's murder, four hours to the west, if you're driving along Interstate 70, another murder takes place in St. Charles, Missouri. On Sunday, May 3rd, 1992, Nancy Kitzmiller, age 24, gets to her job about noon. She works at Boot Village, a country and western store located in a strip mall. In the rear office of the store, customers find her body at 2.30 p.m. She's been shot in the back of the head. It will turn out with a 22 caliber weapon. Boot Village is located in the Bogey Hills Shopping Plaza. It's a large, open shopping area. I'd say 30 shops and offices in a U-shape with a big parking lot in the middle. Boot Village is near the corner of the U at the bottom. In front of this strip where Boot Village is, there are lots of parking places. To the back of the store, there's nothing but a golf course. I would theorize that's where the murderer parked. Then he could come around the side to the front of the store and likely not be seen by anybody. After he kills Nancy, I think he leaves out the back door and takes off. Oh, I should tell you that some sources, including, oh, I'm so disappointed, Wikipedia, have May 4th as the date of Nancy's murder. And I've seen that date in a couple of newspaper articles, and it's gone over into some web pages. But I'm going to go with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch from back in the day, which clearly says Sunday, May 3rd. If you know the area, St. Charles is a big suburb on the west side of the St. Louis metro area. And by the way, birthplace of my number one daughter who turned me on to true crime podcast making me listen to my favorite murder driving all the way down to texas yes we were on i-35 
Bogey House Plaza is right on Zumbel Road. The um, access road to I-70 is right there, right there, almost parallel to the little strip where the boot store is. Nancy's murder is immediately linked to the Indiana murders, and the St. Louis Major Case Squad gets involved. The shopping area is a very busy place the day of the murder. It's a beautiful day, and lots of shoppers are out and about. So the police are able to release a sketch of a possible suspect. But again, it's unremarkable. Nothing really stands out about the murderer. Nancy Christine Kitzmiller is born on September 25th, 1967 in Oklahoma City, daughter of Donald and Carol Kitzmiller. The family moved to St. Peter, Missouri, another suburb of St. Louis, when Nancy was 10. If you're familiar with the St. Louis area, she graduated from Fort Zumwalt North High School and went on to graduate from Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where she majored in geography. Her yearbook picture shows how cute she was, long curly brown hair and a bright smile. Just recently, she had gotten her dream job. Not Working in a store at Boot Village, although she liked her job there, retail was not the career she dreamed of. No, she had just been offered a job in St. Louis at the National Defense Mapping Agency. She was looking forward to starting her career soon, as soon as the government paperwork came through. Nancy grew up loving all things country and western horses rodeos two-step dancing and pickup trucks she had just bought her own little blue chevrolet s10 pickup her mother said she was really good i never had to tell her to clean house or do laundry or anything she was that kind of person nobody in this world could have had a better kid. The very same week as Nancy's murder, the following Thursday, May 7th, at about 6.30 p.m., the I-70 killer strikes one more time that we know of for sure, this time in Raytown, Missouri, at the Woodson Village Shopping Center. Raytown is a suburb of Kansas City, mostly a bedroom community on the east side of the metro area, right off I-70, about five or six hours drive from St. Charles. This murder is one that I particularly remember. I had just started working in Kansas City then. The I-70 killer was big news already. I remember seeing the map of the murders and thinking he's bound to strike in Kansas City soon if they don't catch him. I wondered if it might be somebody who lives in Kansas City. It's pretty centrally located to the murder scenes. My pet theory was it was somebody who lived in Kansas City, and if I could just keep an eye out for him, I might spot someone who looks like the murderer in the pictures. The Village Shopping Center is about three miles off the highway 
If you know the area, it's at the intersection of East 63rd and Woodson Road. This is the middle of mostly residential neighborhoods. It looks a lot like the shopping area where Nancy Kitzmiller was killed in St. Charles, but not nearly as close to the interstate. It's actually quite a ways away from the interstate. Tim Hickman is working at his video store, remember those, that evening. He notices a man dressed in a gray sports coat walk by his store. Minutes later, he hears a loud pop, which he immediately thinks might be a gunshot. When he goes to the front of his store to look out, he sees the man walking around the corner of the store next door. As he tells it, quote, I kind of looked in and I didn't see anything. I was calling, ma'am, ma'am. I stepped forward a couple of steps and saw her legs sticking out of the other room, unquote. The clerk at the store next door, Sarah Blessing, is lying face down with blood pooling around her head. Tim calls the police, and he did have one of those big brick, brick-like mobile phones with him. Uh, and the police are on the scene immediately. The shopping center is quite busy, so a number of witnesses recall the man in the gray sports coat. The composite drawing and description they release is very similar to, to the one from the Wichita murders and the one that's been circulating about the Indiana murders. 35-ish guy, medium height and build, etc., a grocery clerk out in the parking lot gathering up carts also notices the man walking up the hill behind the shopping center to the main road. Listeners, it's a little hard to tell where he's going. Looking at Google Earth and the store where Sarah worked, it was called the Store of Many Colors, a little New Age gift shop. The address is 11573 East 63rd Street, if you want to take a look on Google Earth. Basically, there's a little strip of, oh, half a dozen stores that face a grocery store across a big parking lot. Sarah's store is on the end. To me, it seems like the easiest thing to do, again, is park behind that strip and hop in your car after the murder. But there is a lot of traffic on the road, so I guess the murderer might be afraid someone would notice the car. However, um, all the accounts say he went up the hill. So he must have parked or or had a bike or something, a motorcycle stashed nearby somewhere. It's all residential. So you'd think somebody would have noticed a strange car. I can't help but think he knows the area really well. Looking at the neighborhood, it doesn't look super new. So I think the houses would have been there then. Anyway, whatever his plan is, he gets away after murdering Sarah with one shot to the back of her head. Sarah Lynn Hart is born 
on the 5th of March, 1955, in Topeka, Kansas, to William and Clarence Earl Hart. She has a brother and a sister. She's been married to Sonny Blessing, who works for Transworld Airlines for several years and has two stepchildren. She's very interested in nas- natural healing and is a reflexologist. I had only a vague idea what that is, so according to the Mayo Clinic online, reflexology is the application of pressure to areas on the feet or the hands. The theory behind reflexology is that areas of the foot and hands correspond to organs and systems of the body. Pressure applied to the foot or hand is believed to bring relaxation and healing to the corresponding area of the body. Reflexologists use charts to guide them as they apply pressure to specific areas. Several studies indicate that reflexology may reduce pain and psychological symptoms such as stress and anxiety and enhance relaxation and sleep. The store of many colors where where Sarah worked had only been open a few weeks. Sarah and some of her friends had gone in together to open the store, which sold health food, crystals, and New Age literature. So an interesting little place where Sarah enjoyed working. A friend said of her, quote, Sarah was named properly. She was a blessing. Now that she's gone, there's going to be a big hole in a lot of lives, unquote. By the time of Sarah's murder, there is a multi-state task force working on the I-70 slayings. They conclusively link all the murders, including the two in Wichita, by means of ballistic testing. The bullets used in all six murders are definitely from the same weapon. Detective Crook says, quote, I think we are definitely dealing with a serial killer. He's not really getting much money out of the shops. We don't know why he's killing people, unquote. Many times with serial killers, the why is a sexual motive, but this is not the case for any of the I-70 murders. There's never any sign of really that he even touched the bodies. Major Pat Marici of the St. Louis Police Department says, quote, The sad part is that people are getting killed. I think he will continue to do it until he gets caught. Unquote. Well, listeners, as it will turn out, he seems to be wrong about that. The I-70 murders stop with Sarah Blessing. The investigators are stymied. The task force follows up on leads. They get the FBI behavioral unit involved. Now, this was kind of interesting to me. The whole time I was researching this case, I kept thinking there'd be a profile of some kind on the murderer because the newspaper kept mentioning FBI behavioral experts, but I never did find anything they came up with. 
early on. Sergeant Crook consults with FBI profiler Larry Setmeyer, who says, quote, everyone leaves a signature at the crime scene, a type of personality. But not everyone is profilable. If the killer just runs in and out, there's not much evidence left, unquote. I don't know, maybe the I-70 killer is not profilable? I've never heard that before, but I would think with six different murders, there would be enough to say something about the perpetrator's psychology. Obligatory, not psychology expert, but I did some in-depth research on the topic, meaning, um, let's see, I watch a lot of true crime documentaries, and I read an article in Psychology Today. In that article, I think they're talking about the type of murderer we have in the I-70 case. Here's what they had to say. Thrill killers are a type of serial killer that derives immense satisfaction from the process of murder. That is, the acts leading up to it, such as tracking their victim, rather than the killing itself. They come to crave the euphoric adrenaline rush provided by stalking and capturing their victim. Tracking their prey becomes an addiction for them, much like a narcotic drug. The victims of a thrill killer are generally strangers. Although the killer may stalk them for a period of time before the attack in order to fuel the excitement of the hunt. Normally the attack of a thrill killer is swift and there is generally no sexual aspect to the murder. So in the absence of anything more authoritative, I think this murderer is a thrill killer. Closer to maybe Son of Sam or the Zodiac Killer. Although, at least as far as we know, the I-70 murderer doesn't seem to crave publicity or taunt the police or the media the way those guys did. Ultimately, though, this case grows very cold. Now, in 1993 and 94, there are similar crimes in Texas. I'll tell you a little bit about them so you can see why there is some thought that they might have been done by the same killer. On September 25, 1993, Marianne Glasscock, 51 years old, so a little older than our other victims, is found shot to death in the antique store she operated in Fort Worth, Texas. Just a month later, on November 1st, Amy Vess, 22 years old, and with long brown hair, by the way, is killed about 6 p.m as she's closing up the dancer's closet, a little dancer's store, just off Interstate 20 in Arlington, Texas, not far from Fort Worth. Um, Arlington's a part of the 
Dallas, Fort Worth, Metroplex. It's in between the two. And, you know, they're really big cities, and it's it's a pretty good-sized city, too. Both these stores are very close to I-35. If you drive south from Oklahoma City on I-35, and as I've said, I strongly advise you not to do that, you'll hit Fort Worth, and there are major, hideous highway interchanges there. I call them mix masters, where you can get on I-30 and I-20. Both these stores are in exactly the same type of place the I-70 killer struck and right next to interstates. Then late in the morning on January 15, 1994, Vicki Webb, age 35, is working alone at her gift store near Houston, Texas. This is quite a ways from Dallas um, and not not on I-35. You'd, what would you get on? I'm not sure. Um, but Houston's quite a ways to the east of where I-35. I-35 goes through um, Waco and Austin and San Antonio. Um, anyway, Vicki Webb is working at her store near Houston, Texas, when a man comes into her store and browses. They even chat for a while. He asks her to get something off a shelf, and when she turns her back, she hears a pop and collapses, unable to move. She's been shot in the head. Now, she will survive. Here's her chilling story. My body acted as if it was dead. I thought, oh my God, I have a 13-year-old daughter. Please, I can't die now. The man rolled me over and dragged me behind the counter. He put the gun to my forehead and I heard a clicking sound. Then he just laughed. There were sounds from the real estate business next door and the attacker left very quickly. A few minutes later, a couple of the customers came into the shop and I said, excuse me, Southern women, polite at all times, even when you've been shot in the head. Can you please get me some help? I've been shot. Vicki says it was just a fluke that she wasn't killed. Quote, I survived because I have an abnormally large spinal column. Where he shot me, a million other people would have been dead. Unquote. Vicki's description of the man is very much like those of the I-70 killer, and she thought the drawings she looked at were very similar to the man. Listeners, these crimes are clearly much like the I-70 slayings. Some detectives who've worked on the cases over the years absolutely think they're committed by the same man, but others don't. However, in Texas, the weapon used is not the same one as the I-70 killer used. It's a 22 caliber, but definitely a different gun. Still, the crimes are all near major interstates, women working alone in small shops, shot in the back of the head with a 22. To protect her identity, there aren't pictures of Vicki Webb out there, but Amy and Marianne are brunettes. Marianne's a little older, than the others, 
but the similarities between the among the victims those are definitely there the description of the suspect is similar too and there are other crimes that are similar in other parts of the country without knowing more details of all the crimes and there just isn't much out there other than what i've already told you it's hard to form an opinion on these other cases and whether they're related or not i kind of think the texas murders and and the attempted murder of Vicky are the same killer. Um, and I think, I think he might be. I think maybe it's even likely that he's also the I-70 killer. But it would be easy to talk me out of that opinion. At first, law enforcement does not release many details about the crimes, even though they're at least to all appearances, aren't, aren't making much progress on the cases. The only thing known about the gun is that it's a 22 caliber pistol, and the same gun is used in the I-70 murders. Now, later on, 20 years later, there is more detailed information released about the gun. Law enforcement, they believe it to be either an Intratech Scorpion pistol or an Armaverka ET-22 pistol. The first weapon, the Intratech Scorpion, is pretty common looking. It's black, a black pistol with the slide, slidey thing on the top. You load it by um, pushing a magazine up the handle. But the second one is very distinctive looking. It's sometimes called a Navy Luger pistol. Apparently, it also has a tendency to jam when used with low caliber ammunition, like 22s. There's something else interesting that they mention. All spent cartridges at crime scenes had the materials corundum and red rouge on them. The owner or killer may have used corundum and red rouge for fire lapping of the weapon or may have used the materials in grinding, polishing, or machine shop work. The weapon may have been stolen by the killer or discarded or seized by police in connection with another matter. That's the St. Charles police who released that information. I think this information is a really good clue. We have in my house a, a few firearms, but I really don't know much about guns beyond the basics. I had to look up what fire lapping is. It's smoothing out the inside barrel of a gun. There can be little imperfections, and the corundum and rouge are, rouge are used to smooth that out. So the bullet goes through the barrel faster and easier, and it's less likely to malfunction the weapon. It's also used by jewelers to polish gems. So there's some thought that the murderer 
is familiar with guns and how to take care of them. I guess he also could be a jeweler. I don't know. Or some people think he may have a connection with the military because they think that shows some familiarity with weapons. Of course, that's entirely possible, but it's also possible he he just stole the gun and all that stuff was already on there. So, but but it is interesting. Personally, I think I think the distinctive looking pistol is the most important clue and I'll put a picture of what that looks like out there. Personally, I think that releasing the information sooner might have been more effective than waiting decades, but I know listeners holding back information is very common to help weed out bad tips and false confessions and not to tip law enforcement's hand to the murderer. It is what it is. It just makes it hard when you're doing a podcast. And um, we have the information now. Hey, if it jogs anyone's memory out there, contact law enforcement. The information about the gun was put out there by the St. Charles, Missouri PD. Uh, It's part of a YouTube appeal they put out. Uh, Nancy Kitzmiller's parents appear in it. And I'll put the link, the phone number, and all that stuff in the show notes. Listeners, this case is it's just ice cold. It's it's almost 30 years old. There's really not been much in the way of progress on it. There's a lot of speculation about it, and that's pretty much all there is, speculation. We can hope maybe there's evidence we don't know about that could lead to a resolution someday, Hey, maybe there'll be some huge scientific breakthrough in forensics or or a confession. If you're interested, there are some fascinating threads. They're all speculative, of course, on Reddit and Owen Web Sleuth, especially about the connection with known murderers in the area. I think the speculation is pretty far-fetched, but not impossible, and certainly interesting. There was a case at the time of the murders, the I-70 murders, in the area. The murderer was named Donald Waterhouse. I forgot to put where. I, I think it was Tennessee where he committed the murders. He killed his parents. Early in 1992, not long before the I-70 murder started, and he was at large until October of that year. Law enforcement did think he might be connected with the I-70 murders, but from everything I've read, they, they looked into it and decided there wasn't a connection with him. I'm not sold on the speculation about connections to some other famous serial killers, but you can read how people have connected the I-70 killer with more famous serial killers. Herb Baumeister, 
he, ugh, that's a really ugh, case. I think he, he suspected of killing as many as 20 people. And he, if you may have heard of him, he buried the people on his, on his own property. And I think if I'm remembering right, one of his, one of his children is the one who noticed a human bone or something like that. Herb Baumeister. It's an it's an interesting case. And um Robert Durst, the kind of kind of crazy guy. There have been a lot of um documentaries about him. But if you if you're interested in that kind of stuff and want to go down some rabbit holes, there are some good I seventy uh, killer threads on Reddit and Web Sleuths. I also ran across a blog with some really good posts about the case. Not not far fetched at all. The um, he's put a lot of thought into his analysis. The link is questersite.wordpress.com. Q U E S T E R S I T E dot WordPress dot com. I'll put the link in the show notes. The author's line of thinking is a lot like mine, so of course it's brilliant. <laughs> and when I was reading the post, he reminded me of something I sort of ignored while I was writing this case up. A few witnesses at the crime scenes report seeing a man who they thought might be a transient and even possibly ill. Uh, he was muttering to himself. And there was a theory that the killer might be a transient at the time. I decided early on I didn't think so, and that whoever the person was, he didn't have anything to do with this case. And I, I, I do think, yeah, I our killer might be mentally ill, but I didn't think he was, you know, some obviously out of it kind of guy. I think he just looks like a normal guy. But Quester makes the point that he might have been disguising himself, you know, to just, just trying that out when he first started. So that, I think, is a good point. I I think the killer's pretty cunning, and he may have been, you know, experimenting a little bit with how to be a better murderer. Um, there's also speculation that the murderer might have been a truck driver. I don't think that's likely because of the problem of parking the truck. I think somebody would notice a big rig parked anywhere near these crime scenes. I guess he could park his truck at a truck stop and ride a bike or a motorcycle to the sh to the shops and escape that way after the murders possibly but i just don't think that's likely i think he drives some nondescript car and parks it unobtrusively near where he wants to commit the murders an interesting area of criminology is what's known as geographical profiling it's a methodology pioneered by dr kim rosmo it's it's Rosmo R O I think it's R O S S M O might be R O S M O. Uh, he's originally uh, a Canadian criminologist. Nowadays, he's a professor at Texas State University. 
he's the real expert. He's the pioneer in, in that particular field. I'm oversimplifying a lot, <laughs> obligatory not a criminologist, but the idea of geographical profiling is to analyze the locations of related crimes and use the data to figure out where the criminal lives or or works or has close ties to, helping to narrow down the suspect pool. That's something I think could be useful in this case. As I said, you know, my just my overall impression is he might be from Kansas City or or at the very least somewhere in the area. Um, I don't think the murderer is actually stalking his victims the way we think of stalking, but I do think he scouts the areas beforehand and picks out likely locations and possibly victims ahead of time. As far as a motive, I certainly don't think it's robbery, although he does give in to the impulse to take cash from the cash registers. I think that's part of the thrill for him, and maybe an attempt to throw law enforcement off the track. I do think it's noteworthy that he took Mick McCown's wallet. Don't know if that was ever found. There's no mention of the killer taking any other, um, maybe souvenirs or like the woman's purses or, or something from the shops, but, but that's possible. And that could be information the police have held back to. So just something to think about. What I really wish law enforcement would release is a detailed psychological profile of the I-70 killer. I, I, I find it hard to believe they don't have one of him. And sometimes these profiles, those guys can come up with some amazing details. There's one case that comes to my mind. I can't remember exactly which case. Maybe... I'm I'm thinking Ohio somewhere, but um, and I I think the profiler was John John Douglas, one of the really famous profilers. Anyway, the profiler actually put in the profile what type of car he thought the murderer would be likely to drive, and he was right. That. Something like that would just be awesome in this case. This, I think, is somebody who could be anyone, anywhere. And I know I keep saying it, but especially when murders are decades old and there's no progress, why not lay out all the details for the public? Something might catch the right person's eye and lead to a breakthrough. Alas, listeners, all I can tell you is my own absolutely not expert wild speculation. What I see is just an ordinary guy with some kind of job that requires him to be on the road a lot. Not quite sure what that would be. I I thought maybe, maybe a sales representative or a 
a district manager of some franchise with locations all over the area. Maybe an auto parts delivery guy. Um, I, I I thought of that because there there are automotive stores near some of the locations of the murders. Anyway, some, something like that with a guy who's on the road a lot. Where he's committing the murders is part of a regular route that he's familiar with. And it would make sense that he might live near his route. Now, of course, it's also possible he purposely doesn't commit any murders near where he lives to keep things with law enforcement, you know, keep them off balance. But at the very least, he's very familiar with this area. I think at the time of the murders, he's under some kind of serious, major pressure that he cannot deal with. And the immediate source is a woman, or maybe even women. And the victims remind him of what's causing all this pressure on him. Possibly his wife or girlfriend or a female boss. Someone he can't, for some reason, deal with. So he's overwhelmed with a sense of powerlessness. The murders give him a sense of release. That's the best I can do, listeners. Why did he stop? If, if he did... All kinds of things could have happened. He could have been arrested for something else, gotten killed in an accident, died of natural causes, or maybe things just changed in his life. He got a different job, got divorced, got psychiatric help. It could happen. Sadly, I just don't think we'll ever know. But I'm wrong all the time, and I hope I am here. So if by any chance you've heard something on this podcast that sparks a memory in you, something that might help solve the case, call one of the cold case squads in Indianapolis or Wichita or St. Louis or Kansas City or even even Texas. I kind of think it's all the same guy. Talk to somebody in law enforcement if you even think you might know something. I put the information for the St. Louis, the St. Charles Police Department out there um, right at the top of the show notes. There are posts for all the victims' graves on findagrave.com. You can leave them virtual flowers. Every one of the victims was such a loss to their families and communities. Just good, hardworking, nice people. And there aren't nearly enough of those people in this world. Most of their parents have died since the murders. 
Robin Fuldauer's dad died only a few months after his daughter's murder. Trish Major's husband has never really recovered from her death. He told a reporter, quote, We had an absolute textbook marriage. We were best friends. It actually took me about 13 years to fully accept and get through the grieving. I really haven't moved on. But I'm not haunted anymore. He never remarried. Patricia Smith's dad regularly prodded the Wichita Police Department for years about solving the case. He died in 2018. Mitt McCown's mom died just last year. Sarah Blessing's folks also died never seeing justice for their child. I believe Nancy Kitzmiller's parents are still alive. From time to time, they talk to the press in hopes of keeping their daughters and the other victims' cases in the public's consciousness. Listeners, that's all I have about this haunting case. As I said, there is very interesting speculation about this case out there online. So there's a long list of sources in the show notes. I promise to do a solved case next time where justice gets done. The world has enough uncertainty and anxiety right now. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you could leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. I would be forever grateful. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blueberry. It's it's blueberry without the E's in it, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. If you hate putting your thoughts out there on the internet, I understand that. So you can also email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.